This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. This week, we're talking about surprise bills with David Shelton, CEO of Patient Matters. Later, in a sponsored segment, Rich Daly interviews Paul Anderson, a manager and decision support for Strata Decision Technology, about hospital trends, challenges, and opportunities presented by a better understanding of the total cost of care. We'll also have five ways to engage with millennial patients. But first, let's hear from Rich and Chad. Hello, this is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, and this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Leading the pack here this week is the November 1st CMS release of the final rule for the Medicare Hospital Outpatient Perspective Payment System, the always fun OPPS rule. And uh, highest profile among those items that were part of the rule was one that was actually dropped from the proposed rule and didn't appear in the final rule. This was the CMS provision that would have required hospitals to make public a list of their standard charges, which it defined as both gross charges and payer-specific negotiated charges. The separate rule is still pending and has not been finalized. So, um, Chad, what do you uh, what do you see as the significance there? You know, Rich, it was it was interesting in the run up to this because you saw CMS very quickly after the comments were due on the rule within two two and a half weeks. Suddenly, the final rule goes to the Office of Management and Budget, and so I know we had speculated internally that you know basically given the volume of comments that they would have received on the the price transparency proposal, there was no way that they would have read all of them, considered them. And so if the price transparency requirement were included in the final rule, we were kind of assuming that it was just going to be finalized as proposed and CMS was more or less going through the motions. Turns out not to be the case. Evidently, they got 1,400 separate submissions related to the price transparency requirement. So you might say that people were interested in it. And so what's happened now is, is in the OPBS final rule, they said that sometime later this year or early next year, they will release a separate rule that will include the price transparency requirements. But what was also interesting about this is that in a Wall Street Journal article that was published, I guess it was Friday, CMS administrator Seema Verma said that now they were sort of stepping back and taking a global look at their transparency efforts and anticipate including provisions in this upcoming final rule on transparency that would also include health plans and sort of how they might go about disclosing cost sharing and negotiated rates. So, you know, if you thought you were going to get to some resolution on this quickly, that is not to be the case. So this is something that we'll still continue to watch very closely as we move forward. I see. And uh, also among high profile provisions with a financial impact on hospitals, 
was CMS's decision to continue the 340B program's reduced Medicare and health plan payments. Those were cut from average sales price of plus 6% to ASP minus 22.5%. And CMS also um, is continuing it in the face of a federal court rejecting the previous cut. Um, the administration is appealing the decision and has decided to go ahead and, and continue it while that appeal is, uh, is underway. I guess that's a big deal, too, uh, financially for hospitals, right, Chad? Yeah, it is. And it's frustrating because obviously the uh, court has found that CMS does not have the jurisdiction to make this cut, but yet they've continued to do so. It sort of reminds me, for those of you who might be fans of the film Animal House, you know, did the Americans give up when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? This is sort of what CMS is doing here. What I thought was maybe a little ominous in the final rule was in the commentary. Obviously, CMS had asked for suggestions on how they might go about sort of correctly, in their opinion, calculating payments for separately payable Part B drugs that are required under the 340B program. And obviously, earlier or after the proposed rule came out, but before the final rule, they had uh, issued in the Federal Register a request for data from hospitals related to their acquisition costs for Part B drugs acquired under the 340B program for CY18 and 19, and have suggested that they'll try to base prices on that. And in the rule, they went into some detail as believing that their initial cut at 22.5% was air quotes conservative, which to me implies that they think they might be able to make deeper cuts once they have that data. And with that data in hand, um, could make a pretty good case in defense of that cut in court. So again, that's something else that we'll have to have to watch as as it moves forward. Well, Chad, thanks a lot for taking the time and for sharing their insights with uh, with us on all these really significant changes for our hospital finance. Yeah, no, Rich, always always a pleasure to chat with you. Always happy to do it. Also, keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice by checking out our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news. Is your organization a high performer in revenue cycle? Earn the recognition you deserve with a MAP Award from HFMA. My name's Christy Pahanage. I'm the Associate Vice President of Revenue Management Operations at Geisinger. We pride ourselves on the MAP Award, having received it 12 times. Geisinger takes a lot of pride in our results. Our team is very dedicated to the metrics, looking at what's getting measured and making sure that we're able to deliver results for the organization. Find out more about HFMA's MAP Award by visiting hfma.org slash MAP Award. Surprise bills are a well-known issue in our healthcare system today. Alex Azar, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, has pledged to stop surprise bills. And according to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll, nearly 8 in 10 Americans support legislation that would do so. Efforts at such legislation have not been successful to date, although in an article posted last week at hfma.org, Rich Daly says the legislative fight over the issue could be coming to a close soon. Today's guest, David Shelton, CEO of Patient Matters, talked with us about how to navigate the issue and what needs to be done to eliminate surprise bills completely. David, by now, we all know about the problem of surprise bills. It's something that's talked about more and more in the industry. It's something we've talked about a lot at HFMA. How have you seen its impact on patients and providers change over time? And what is it like today? 
Yeah, Erica, what, what we've seen and everybody knows is a continuing growth with surprise billing. It has not slowed down. I, th- I think it's now it's more than one in seven patients have been impacted by, by surprise billing. And when those patients consider surprise billing, I think their definite definition of, of a surprise bill is it's a bill that no one has agreed to pay, a bill that they didn't anticipate and they could not avoid. So the, those changes, those growths there are probably happening for several reasons. Patients, and HFMA has talked a lot about it, patients are behaving more and more like consumers in the healthcare space. They have a mindset when they're making insurance purchases and they're doing them based on their household income and opportunity with that perhaps have insurance purchases ultimately that are higher deductibles and have more limited in-network offerings. And I think even with going back to 2010 with the Affordable Care Act being enacted, 20 million more Americans were put into the health insurance uh, spectrum so that that mindset, those individuals came in making purchases on their insurance plans that were of the the lower bronze-type plans with higher deductibles and more out-of-pocket expenses and maybe a more limited in-network offerings, which is causing a lot of that problem for them. And, Eric, I think it's also, it's candidly, the out-of-network cost structure is probably aiding some of the for-profit healthcare services in creating greater, greater revenue. Uh, I live in Texas, and in in Texas, we've seen a lot of growth in the for-profit freestanding emergency rooms that refuse to contract with insurers so they can retain flexibility in their charges. If you're an uninformed patient, that business model is going to cause uh, some significant financial burdens for you. So when when we look at the surprise billing piece and and the things that are taking place, the healthcare industry, I think, has been slow to respond and, and address the issue, and it's certainly complex. But the solutions that need to be enacted or, or need to be considered probably are certainly understood around the benefit structure, uh, the underlying contracts between payers and providers, and then ultimately tools and staff at the hospital level that are able to, to give real-time calculations and estimates and understand the patient's insurance so they can help that patient be more informed about the experience that lies ahead. Shelton also talked about what healthcare organizations get wrong when it comes to patient financial communication. CMS now requires hospitals to post their charges online in an effort to, to improve price transparency for the patients, which I think was a, a good opportunity. But a lot of healthcare providers came through and simply uploaded their charge master. And I think they missed an opportunity to build and improve on the patient relationship. So when we look at some best practices and, and things that a, that a healthcare provider or a hospital can do, I think using online estimation tools that are patient-friendly that give the patient the ability to, to, to start taking a look at what their expenses might be. A lot of hospitals today are starting to incorporate dedicated phone lines for patients to call into hospitals and request an, an estimation. And some hospitals are actually seeing census improvement from that because it's an opportunity to, to begin a communication path with the patient at the very beginning. I think probably one of the most effective uh, opportunities a hospital could have is establishing a centralized pre-access center to assist the patients with registration, insurance verification, deductibles and copay review, incorporate an accurate estimation piece, and ultimately uh, assist the patient with flexible payment plans. But it's the opportunity, I think, to open the lines of communication with the patient. Because if you go back to where we first started talking about more and more patients that are making insurance decisions as a consumer, when the hospital has the conversation with the patient at the beginning, 
they're able to inform the patient and that patient can recognize that the insurance they chose to purchase is now has these challenges and the hospital is willing to work with them through these challenges. When the hospital waits until the statement drops in order to have that conversation with the patient, and now the patient's upset because there's all these additional expenses they weren't anticipating, then all of a sudden the patient's choice in insurance coverage is now the hospital's fault or the hospital's responsibility. And the hospital finds itself in a defensive position when it missed the opportunity to inform the patient and build a relationship from the beginning. What needs to happen to make surprise bills go away? Because having that conversation, it sounds like like a great idea, but at the end of the day, that patient is still going to get a bill that they might have trouble paying, even if they have a payment plan or what have you. These surprise bills, the dollar amounts are very high. So what needs to happen to make surprise bills be the exception or to ideally not exist at all. Yeah, and I, I think that's where the rubber meets the road. And, and, and I think we all recognize it's certainly possible, but you've got to recognize there are several players that are at the table that all have different needs to be met. Uh, number one, you've got the health, the hospitals, the healthcare providers that are looking for solutions that don't cap their ability to get paid. And, and I can appreciate that. At the same time, you've got insurers, the payers, that are, are looking for solutions that, that limit and define their payment responsibilities. And I think we can all appreciate that. But the part I think sometimes we neglect is you've got the patient that's simply looking for a clear and easy understanding to the, to the bill that, and that is something that they were expecting. So there's, there's a lot of solutions that are being bannered around right now, banning balance billing in situations where the patients are uh, involuntarily treated by an out-of-network provider, requiring insurance providers ultimately to pay the out-of-network costs at a benchmark rate. And you see a lot of activity right now with large employers uh, with self-funded insurance plans that have negotiated with healthcare providers to minimize potential out-of-network experiences. So that you see work being done there. I think there's nine states right now that have passed laws concerning surprise billing. And of course, we talked about the bipartisan legislation that's coming through that ultimately, you know, provides some, some relief for everybody, and, and, and we're looking for that to get signed. There's probably really the, the two things would be broad sweeping educational campaigns that, that makes the consumers more aware, aware of how this works and what makes it occur. And then the payers and providers being held accountable for the patient financial experience. And I, I, I think this kind of, Erica, when you think about the, the question, we all know what will happen if, if we don't do anything with surprise billing. If we don't have to do anything, it's going to continue to grow at, 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 at a rapid pace. If we try to come in with an incremental solution, we're all going to high-five each other and say, hey, that worked out great. There's going to be some political play that, that, that takes place. The hospitals can, and the healthcare providers can all say, hey, we work together to come up with a solution. But we'll really ultimately be kicking the can down the road and, and positioning ourselves for a future conversation in, in just a few years. But if we can take advantage of the legislation that's coming through right now, get on board and recognize that this is a real issue, recognize that there's not-for-profit facilities that are, that are in a position to take advantage of it and limiting their ability to do that, all of that ultimately works best for the end result for the patient. And I think that's where the focus needs to be on. HFMA has a number of resources for healthcare organizations and their patients regarding payment, including a guide to avoid surprise bills. Those resources are available at hfma.org slash dollars. 
confidently face the future. Join HFMA seminars for two days of in-depth education on the topics you need to keep up with the ever-changing landscape of healthcare finance. Choose one of six seminars and earn 13 CPE credits. Join us on December 5th and 6th in Chicago. Visit hfma.org forward slash seminars to learn more and register today. This is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. Cost accounting has traditionally been a challenge for hospitals and health systems compared to businesses in other sectors. It's not a thrilling subject, but its significance for hospitals is increasing amid a variety of financial and policy pressures that are fast emerging. So joining me today on the podcast to talk about emerging data and trends and cost accounting today is Paul Anderson, a manager in decision support for Strata Decision Technology. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about why why has high quality and effective cost accounting been such a challenge for hospitals? And also, what's changed for hospitals and health systems that is now critical enough for them to invest precious time and resources in it now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Thinking about why it's been so difficult is, uh, is really interesting to me. I think if you kind of start with what cost accounting is, I mean, it's basically cost accounting exists to help businesses understand, you know, in detail, get a clear picture of what's happening, what they're spending their money on, um, what activities are happening and how effectively is their money being put to use. Um, And, you know, any business has to be able to, you know, have a clear picture and and understand that detail to uh, be able to perform well. And at a high level, it's cost accounting in healthcare has been difficult just because healthcare is a very, um, it's very complex, you know, from the, if you think about it as a business, um, an analogy that I use is if you think about Apple, you know, cost accounting has been, uh, used in manufacturing for a while. Apple has a few variants of, you know, an iPhone that they make and you know, that they know down to the fraction of a penny, you know, how much it costs to produce a, a phone. Right. But the, the scope of the number of different you know, products that they manufacture is, is pretty small. And to kind of apply that, you know, stretch that then into healthcare to be you know, a bit reductionist for a moment. If you think of a patient's care pathway, uh, you know, individual patient's care pathway as a product, you know, a patient can walk through the doors with you know, any combination of 70,000 diagnosis codes. And you know, in the walls of your healthcare system, they can receive any combination of services, you know, of the, you know, the 10,000, you know, more than 10,000 CPT codes and almost the 90,000, you know, ICD-10 procedure codes. And then, you know, rolling up under those, there's, you know, thousands of different, you know, individual, you know, supplies, drugs, and implants that they can be used for a patient. So all that to say, there's just like a practically, you know, infinite, almost, you know, combination of different, you know, products and services that, you know, a hospital might have to offer to any given patient. It's just very complex. And, you know, cost accounting has been such a challenge because trying to understand such a complex business model, you know, in enough detail to be meaningful without kind of using big data and using some more, you know, rudimentary cost accounting and computing techniques, it's, it's so much. 
I mean, that's why it's so resource intensive. And I mean, it, it's, it's a huge task to get people to try to cost kind of try and figure all that out. And so that's kind of the why it's been difficult in the past. Then getting to, you know, why, why should people be, you know, focusing on that now? I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the technology is here. The need has always been there, but the technology is here now. And things like value-based care, you know, a big umbrella, just kind of elevate it in terms of its importance. And, you know, when, when revenue is capitated, you know, organizations have to really like the, the focus on containing cost is bigger now than it's ever been. So that need is there, and also now is the right time because the uh, you know the, the technology is there, and people use cost accounting you know across industries to help them figure out where they should invest or divest their their focus, um, how they should manage their prices, I mean how they you know where specifically they should look to reduce costs, and you know with advanced cost accounting with the technology that we have now, we've seen people use cost accounting to you know, make decisions that have impacts on their bottom lines to the tune of, you know, tens of millions of dollars and even getting to the hundreds of millions of dollars, whether that's, um, we've seen people actually change their M&A strategy once they have cost accounting in place so they can really understand uh, their businesses better. It's changed how people manage, you know, big trends that are happening, man- successfully manage the transition of volumes from inpatient to outpatient. You know, which is it's just a daunting task. It's taking a big chunk out of people's revenue. So how do you manage that smoothly? Um, and then also just making smarter reimbursement decisions, whether it's you know setting your prices more strategically, negotiating with payers, uh, choosing to enter into enter into value based arrangements, or you know um, actually succeeding in a lot of cost reduction efforts that people have. So like I said, in, in summary, it's it's been difficult in the past because healthcare is is so complicated, but Again, the technology is here now that we can use data to keep all of that straight. And again, just all of the, the market pressures and challenges that you mentioned at the top, that's just you know, exacerbating the importance of this. One other thing to check with you about was uh, surveys and other data Strata has collected so far in partnership with HFMA. I wanted to see what some leading barriers to hospitals um, have been identified to improving their cost accounting efforts. And uh, if you could give us an example or two of ways those uh, barriers have been uh, can be overcome, that's, a, that's such a good question. I, the, the first part I would say there's definitely sort of a um, a mindset and a cultural barrier uh, around cost accounting. You know, cost accounting is uh, primarily a finance function, and so you know traditionally how it's been, you know, you can have a great cost accounting system that gives you a lot of really good data. But that kind of sits in the silo of the finance world. And then, you know, kind of that, that first is that cultural piece of how do you get that data out of the silo of the finance world and actually out to the floor, so to speak. Uh, so operations can make better decisions. So, you know, the clinical teams can make better decisions and, and obviously making sure it's getting to the right places, you know, at a higher level to um, that executive level so they can use that data in the right way to make good decisions. You know, there's just... Silos and, and 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 sometimes you know th- there certainly can be those places where the silos there's a little bit more tension there you know there's some of those maybe some lingering assumptions from times past where there might be some tension between the clinical side and the financial side where if the financial team is saying hey we should reduce our spend here and the clinical team is saying hey no that's going to potentially negatively impact patient outcomes or you know the quality of the care that we deliver to patients I mean that's kind of been an assumption in the past. But really what we find most often, far more 
the far more common scenario is actually is there's actually a lot of win-wins there. That there's usually tons of opportunity to make decisions that are not only better for your patients, but better for the organization from a financial perspective. And typically that just comes down to finding ways to provide, you know, consistently high quality care for patients and simply just, you know, eliminating the variation, for example, goes a long way both to making the patient healthcare experience better, but also helping the organization from a financial perspective as well. And I think beyond that, that's beyond that, the other cultural things, there's just a lot of inertia. Again, like we talked about before, healthcare is a very complicated business. Anyone who's working at a healthcare system has a lot of moving pieces that are, you know, under their purview of responsibility. And so there's just a lot of inertia, you know, to getting, you know, the right data in front of the right people. Just it takes a lot of time to just kind of, you know, build those bridges, even if there's no tension there. Again, it's really, like I said, it's just sort of an inertia that it's, it's, a, it's a big lift. So that cultural uh, thing is probably the first big barrier. And, and the way that we've seen people succeed in that, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's just getting the buy-in from the right people. Um, so figuring out what, you know, talking to your executive teams and, you know, saying, hey, what is the focus of our organization? What are our goals? What are our initiatives? And then showing how cost accounting data can support those. Um, and when you kind of get buy-in at that level and, and people can take that data out to the organization and drive change, it's going to be very pow- powerful. So that cultural thing, the cultural barrier is probably the, uh, the first one uh, that comes to mind. Getting a little more specific, I, I definitely think there's sort of a, a skill level as well, a skill component to wider adoption of, of cost accounting data to, to drive change. I think that comes from you know, making sure you have good data governance and, and data literacy. So some of those things, there's, there's processes to get people that ultimately should be looking at cost data involved in the validation of the cost data so that they understand what the data is, is saying. And so they have you know, obviously they can give feedback on it. If they can give feedback on it and they know that their feedback has been taken, is being taken seriously, they're going to buy into that cost data more and, and want to see what it's, what it's telling them down the road. There's a lot of data. And so there's, there certainly is some level of skill and education involved in knowing how to make that, you know, kind of raw data uh, and turn that into actionable information. Um, and so there's definitely kind of a, a skill component, again, in terms of data literacy, and again, the skill component of figuring out how do we design tools in the right way um, to help people do their jobs better? How do we actually make it easy for people to find the information that they need? I mean, that's, that's such a big thing. If, if you make it easy, if you can give people the right data and you make it easy for them to understand, I need to change what I'm doing and pursue option B instead of option A, if you make it easy for them to see that in your data, you know, people will respond to that positively. So there's kind of a big skill set involved in making it easier for people to find those insights. And, and there is a, the, the last piece is sort of the tool set perspective. There's a ton of data in healthcare. Um, it's, I'm not the first one to say that, you know, healthcare is data rich and insight poor still at this point. There's just a lot of data. And so to, to have the right tool set that you can pull in a lot of data uh, and make, make meaning out of it, there, there's still kind of that, that raw tool set component as well. Um, that has been a barrier in the past, uh, but again, uh, we're, we're seeing those barriers come down and, and, and you know, systems are now able to handle that amount of data, uh, do the data processing to, to make insights come out of all of that.
there have long been signs that millennials view healthcare differently than other generations. They are less likely to have a primary care physician, more likely to be uninsured, and so burdened with student loan debt and limited earning power that many delay or avoid treatment and often can't pay their medical bills. However, research also shows millennials are engaged consumers, demanding increased transparency and flexibility when it comes to their medical expenses. For today's Fast Five, we have five strategies for engaging millennials in payment. Provide estimates during pre-registration. Taking the time to estimate out-of-pocket costs removes guesswork and fear from the patient financial experience. It also provides a solid starting point for discussions around whether patients are prepared to pay their costs of care and the types of assistance they may need. Set the expectation for payment early. Collect copays prior to delivery of service and ensure patients understand what their insurance will cover and when they are expected to pay the remaining balance due. Offer flexible payment plans. 56% of millennials desire flexible payment options, including low interest payment plans, and 36% are likely or very likely to switch providers for low interest or zero interest financing. Give patients the ability to self-service their accounts. 61% of millennials pay their bills online and private portals can give patients the ability to adjust payment terms. Educate staff on the early warning signs of default. When patients miss a payment, early follow-up is critical in order to ensure a bill is paid. These discussions also present the opportunity for staff to offer alternative arrangements. These strategies were provided by Mark Spinner, CEO and President of Access One. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. And I invite you to check out the latest episode of his podcast, Cup of Joe, featuring Z-Dog MD. Thanks this week to Robert Graham and to our sponsor, Strata Decision Technology. Please look for HFMA on social media. We share information about content and events, and you'll get to see some photos of our staff to put faces to the HFMA names you know. And we'd like to hear from you too. Reach out with your pitches and comments to podcast at hfma.org.